Hello, and welcome to Grand Dukes of the Center, Part 2, The House of Wittelsbach. Once more, we are traveling east from Burgundy to the Holy Roman Empire, and today we are going to be discussing the House of Wittelsbach. I realize that as we've been so focused on France, you might not be as familiar with the form and structure of the Holy Roman Empire. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the empire included modern-day Germany, but also Austria, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Czechia, and parts of many more countries as well. In short, it was a massive blob in the middle of Europe. The empire was ruled, unsurprisingly, by the emperor, but not always. A ruler was crowned King of the Romans or King of Germany when they were elected by the electors of the empire, but would not be considered emperor until they were crowned by the pope. This, of course, meant that if the electors and the pope wanted different men to rule the empire, conflict would ensue. The electors were a group of some of the most prestigious princes of the empire. For much of the Middle Ages, there were norms as to who the electors would be, but nothing was set in stone until Emperor Charles IV promulgated the Golden Bull of 1356. This document essentially became the charter of the empire. It laid out how imperial elections were to happen, and fixed the electors as the archbishops of Mainz, Cologne, and Trier, the King of Bohemia, the Duke of Saxony, the Count Palatine of the Rhine, and the Margrave of Brandenburg. Now, this episode will cover a similar period of time to my first Grand Dukes of the Center episode on the House of Luxembourg. I wrote this to be able to stand alone, but I do recommend revisiting the Luxembourg episode if you haven't heard it yet, or don't remember it as it does provide more context to many of the events that I'll cover here. So, along with the houses of Luxembourg and Habsburg, the House of Wittelsbach was one of the most powerful families in the late medieval Holy Roman Empire. The family is probably most closely associated with Bavaria, which they ruled from the 12th century to the 20th, as well as the Palatinate, a collection of territories on the Rhine which they ruled for almost as long. The origins of the House of Wittelsbach date back to the 11th century, when one of the Counts of Shiern acquired and moved to Wittelsbach Castle. As the family came from a line of counts, they were always important nobility, but through their support of the Hohenstaufen emperors of Germany, they reached new heights when they were granted the Duchy of Bavaria in 1180 and the Palatinate in 1214. Now, that's a massive oversimplification, but we gotta start somewhere. So let's really begin with Ludwig II, Duke of Bavaria and Count Palatine of the Rhine. Ludwig was the son of a Wittelsbach Duke of Bavaria, and the heiress to the Palatinate. However, he wasn't their only son, and so only inherited half of Bavaria, Upper Bavaria, while his younger brother got Lower Bavaria. This split would be the first, but definitely not the last time, that Bavaria was split between members of the House of Wittelsbach, something that makes a single narrative of the family and the duchy quite difficult. Unsurprisingly, this practice also contributed to some tensions between the various branches of the Wittelsbach family, and on several occasions, one branch of the family would try and usurp another. 
That being said, I don't want to paint the Vittles box as Machiavellian parasides. It's just that ambition outweighed family ties fairly often. The initial split between Upper and Lower Bavaria didn't last too long, as the Lower Bavarian line died out after a few generations. And, due to a few wars and some convenient deaths, all of Bavaria was united under Ludwig II's son, known conveniently as Ludwig the Bavarian. Before we get into Ludwig the Bavarian's career, though, we need to explore the state of the Holy Roman Empire around the beginning of the 14th century. The last major dynasty to control the imperial throne was the Hohenstaufen, which ended in the mid-1200s. So much of the later 13th century was taken up with the Great Interregnum, a period in which Germany either had no kings or the kings were absent and weak rulers. The Interregnum ended in 1273 with the election of Rudolf of Habsburg, but Rudolf's attempts to install the Habsburgs as the new imperial dynasty were hampered by the electors of the empire, at least for now. One of the few remaining Habsburg allies towards the end of his life was Ludwig II of Bavaria, who had married one of Rudolf's daughters some years earlier. So, when Rudolf died, an anti-Habsburg coalition conspired to elect Adolf of Nassau king of Germany, rather than Rudolf's son and Ludwig II's brother-in-law, Albert. But Ludwig II died shortly after Adolf's election, and his oldest son, another Rudolf, decided to align himself with the new king and married his daughter. Rudolf of Wittelsbach also decided to ignore the family tradition of split inheritance and claimed all of the Palatinate and Upper Bavaria for himself, to the exclusion of his younger brother Ludwig. As Ludwig was a child, there wasn't much that he could do about it. But the young prince was ambitious and had no intention of allowing this arrangement to stick. Therefore, Ludwig could appeal to his uncle, Albert of Habsburg for aid, and in turn could be a pro-Habsburg Duke of Bavaria or Count Palatine. And, as the Count Palatine was an elector of the empire, a pro- or anti-Habsburg vote from the Palatinate had the potential to decide an imperial election. For reasons that we don't need to get into, Adolf of Nassau was deposed in 1298, and Albert of Habsburg was elected in his place. In this election, both Rudolf and Ludwig claimed the Palatinate vote, with Rudolf supporting Adolf of Nassau, and Ludwig supporting Albert of Habsburg. This contested election sparked a brief civil war, where Rudolf of Bavaria continued to support his father-in-law Adolf. Albert ended up winning this conflict, and Rudolf then accepted his uncle as his overlord, at least for now. The next year, the Count of Holland and Zealand died childless, but had stipulated that his lands should go to his cousin, John of Aven, Count of Hainaut. This arrangement had been confirmed during the reign of Albert's father, but the king of Germany decided that as the counties technically had no direct heir, that he could seize them as vacant imperial fiefs. This move sparked significant pushback, especially among the princes of the Western Empire, who were not inclined to allow the Habsburgs to set up a power base along the Lower Rhine. Therefore, the Rhenish electors, the archbishops of Mainz, Trier, and Cologne, and the Count Palatine of the Rhine, Rudolf of Wittelsbach, came together in an anti-Habsburg alliance. 
Considering the amount of times on the show that I've referred to the Counts of Haino, Holland, Zealand, you might have gathered that Albert was unsuccessful in preventing John of Aven from succeeding to his cousin's counties. But he did manage to outmaneuver his Rhenish enemies, and, as a part of Albert's campaigns against the anti-Habsburg coalition, he forced Rudolf into accepting his younger brother Ludwig as co-ruler of Upper Bavaria and the Palatinate. After this rebellion, however, Rudolf remained largely in the pro-Habsburg camp, and, after Albert was assassinated, Rudolf was even put forward as the pro-Habsburg candidate for the throne. Albert did have several sons who wanted to be king, but this period can be seen as one of institutionalized dynastic change. The electors of the empire wanted desperately to prevent another dynasty from taking control of the imperial office, and so the election of another Habsburg was out of the question. The anti-Habsburg faction coalesced behind Charles of Valois, brother of King Philip IV of France. And so as much as they were anti-Habsburg, they were also pro-French. Both candidates, therefore, had a lot of baggage. And so, as we covered in our first Grand Dukes of the Center episode, Henry of Luxembourg ended up being chosen as a compromise candidate. Now we've already covered Henry's reign as emperor, and he didn't interact much with the Wittelsbachs, so we're going to skip over it here. When Henry died in 1313, there were a handful of possible candidates for the imperial throne. The first of these was King John of Bohemia, Henry's son. But, as institutionalized dynastic change was the order of the day, John was able to command few supporters. Another candidate was a son of Philip IV, but the nobles of the empire still disliked the idea of being ruled by a French prince. Therefore, the two leading candidates were Ludwig the Bavarian and Frederick of Habsburg, or Frederick the Fair, one of King Albert of Habsburg's sons. While Ludwig had begun his career as the pro-Habsburg Wittelsbach prince, things had changed over the years. His brother Rudolf's pro-Habsburg turn appeared to be sincere, and the conflicts between the two had not abated. By this point, Ludwig had gained control of almost all of Upper Bavaria, while Rudolf remained in control of the Palatinate. Slowly, the Habsburgs decided that Ludwig represented a threat as much as he was an ally. And so, the family began to shift their support towards the older Wittelsbach brother in their squabbles. And around the time of Henry's death, Ludwig and Frederick the Fair found themselves embroiled in a conflict over who would act as the guardian of the young Wittelsbach princes who ruled Lower Bavaria, a conflict where Ludwig emerged victorious. Therefore, Ludwig ended up in the anti-Habsburg camp, and with his reputation and power enhanced by his victories over his brother Rudolf and his cousin Frederick, he decided to seek the imperial office. He found support in the Luxembourgs, who realized that while they were unable to elect John of Luxembourg king of the Romans, they could still prevent the Habsburgs from regaining the imperial office. In the end, both Ludwig and Frederick were elected king of Germany, with Rudolf of Wittelsbach, bitter about his loss of Bavaria, voting for Frederick. And, due to this and other disputes over who held the right to vote, both Ludwig and Frederick could claim to be elected by a majority of the electors. Further complicating the situation, Ludwig was crowned at Aachen, the traditional place of coronation, 
while Frederick was crowned by the Archbishop of Cologne, who traditionally had the right to crown the King of Germany. So with both kings having roughly equal claims to the throne, a civil war seemed to be the only way to figure things out. Ludwig decided to begin his offensive close to home. He managed to chase his brother Rudolf out of his remaining Bavarian holdings and out of the Palatinate. Rudolf fled to England in 1317, where he died a few years later, leaving his sons to carry on the fight with their now ascendant uncle. Ludwig, however, was not terribly worried about his nephews at this point, and turned his attention to Frederick the Fair. Neither king had the resources to mount a major offensive against the other, so for a few years, raids and counter-raids into each other's territories marked the extent of the conflict. The two finally met in battle in 1322, where Frederick's forces were crushed and he ended up being captured by Ludwig, essentially putting an end to the Civil War. Other Habsburgs continued the fight, but for the most part, the wind had been taken out of their sails. Ludwig then spent much of the rest of his reign building up the power of the House of Wittelsbach. In earlier times, the emperor was able to draw from a deep well of imperial rights and possessions, but the interregnum had seen many of these rights and possessions sold off or seized. Therefore, German kings in the later Middle Ages had to rely on Hausmacht, or their house's lands and power, in order to throw their weight around in the empire. So almost every king elected since the end of the Hohenstaufen dynasty worked to increase their own and their family's holdings. Because even though the imperial office was weak in many ways, it did allow the king a good amount of latitude in redistributing lands that could be considered vacant. This is how the Habsburgs got Austria and the Luxembourgs got Bohemia, and Ludwig did not plan on letting his own house miss the opportunity. In 1323, he was able to grant the Margraviate of Brandenburg to his oldest son, after its ruling family died out, which secured another electoral vote for his house. And Brandenburg was not Ludwig's only major acquisition, as he also claimed Tyrol for his family in 1342, by voiding the unhappy marriage of its heiress to a Luxemburger prince, and marrying her to his son and he inherited Lower Bavaria when that branch of the Wittelsbach family died out. In 1345, the Count of Haino, Holland, Zealand died without children, and as Ludwig had married Margaret of Aven, the Count's oldest sister, he decreed that she should inherit all three counties. This move alienated several other princes, as the legality of female inheritance of the counties had not yet been established and, even if it was, passing all three counties to his own wife, rather than splitting them up between her and her other sisters, was an unpopular decision. But the king was not only making enemies, he was also mending fences. In 1329, the Treaty of Pavia was signed between Ludwig and his nephews, and recognized their claim to the Palatinate and Ludwig's claim to Bavaria. This marked the official separation of the Palatine and Bavarian branches of the Wittelsbach family, and made peace between those branches. Ludwig also looked to make peace with the Habsburgs. After the initial defeat of Frederick the Fair, the Habsburg and Wittelsbach princes decided to make up. The two cousins had grown up together in Vienna, and, by all accounts, were personal friends, 
driven apart by ambition and politics. Due to a series of conflicts between the Pope and the Emperor, which I'll get into shortly, Ludwig proclaimed Frederick as joined king. For his part, Frederick didn't do anything once he was king again, and really, the title was purely honorary. It did mark, though, the renewal of friendship between Ludwig and the House of Habsburg. This friendship was reinforced when the Bavarian gifted the Duchy of Carinthia to the Habsburgs in 1335. And it was important that Ludwig get the Habsburgs on side because he was busy alienating the Pope and the Luxembourgs. The repossession of Tyrol was the largest offense against the House of Luxembourg, but tensions between Wittelsbach and Luxembourg had been rising for years. All in all, the Wittelsbach-Luxembourg enmity can be seen as a competition for land and power between the two great houses. The Wittelsbach papal enmity, on the other hand, needs to be fleshed out a bit more. The conflict between Ludwig and the popes didn't start with Ludwig. Rather, it was a continuation of a now centuries-long power struggle between the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy. To make a long story short, by the 14th century, the popes considered themselves to be vicars of the empire. This meant that they claimed a certain amount of authority over the empire and the emperor, as well as additional rights and powers in the Italian parts of the empire. On the other hand, the emperors did not see themselves as subservient to the pope, and furthermore, still had their own plans for imperial rule in Italy. So going back a little, Frederick the Fair and Ludwig the Bavarian were both elected King of Germany in October of 1314, and notably, there was no pope at that point. The previous pontiff had died a few months earlier, and his successor, John XXII, wouldn't be elected until 1316. When John was elected pope, he proclaimed that as neither king had been properly elected, the imperial office was vacant, and as pope, he would exercise his powers as vicar to decide the situation. This claim might have carried some weight in 1314, but by 1316, the power struggle between Frederick and Ludwig was well underway. So naturally, both Frederick and Ludwig ignored John's demands, and after Ludwig defeated Frederick in 1322, the Bavarian king sent an imperial agent to Italy to act in his interests. This appointment did not sit well with the Pope, as Ludwig's man displaced some of John's partisans with his own appointees, and intervened in some local Italian disputes. And so, John and Ludwig's conflict got wrapped up in the conflicts between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines in Italy, which I covered briefly in the first Grand Dukes of the Center episode. With the Civil War over, John now accused Ludwig of illegitimately acting as king as he had not been properly elected, or had received papal approval for that election. Ludwig maintained that his election was proper, and as he had been elected king of Germany, he could act as such with or without papal approval. Things came to a head in 1324, when John XXII excommunicated Ludwig which prompted the Bavarian to declare the Pope illegitimate and heretical. While this was a setback for the king, the Pope's authority in Germany was quite limited, and in general, Ludwig was more popular than John among the princes of the empire. Ludwig decided to finally get himself crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 1327, excommunication or no excommunication. 
He first went to Milan to get crowned King of Italy, and from there made his way to Rome. On his journey south, accompanied by an army, by the way, Ludwig worked to empower members of the Ghibelline, or pro-imperial, faction. Ludwig's entrance into Rome in the beginning of 1328 was made easier by the fact that this was all happening during the Avignon Papacy. So while the Bishop of Rome was incredibly hostile to Ludwig, the city of Rome itself actually viewed him in a somewhat favorable light. While in Rome, Ludwig declared John XXII deposed, appointed an anti-pope, and was subsequently crowned emperor by that anti-pope. However, things were not all rosy for Ludwig. Just as his initial march south into Italy was largely successful, his march back to Germany was followed by setbacks for the imperial party. By the time he returned to Germany in 1330, just about all of his progress south of the Alps had been undone. And from 1330 on, we see the House of Luxembourg moving closer to the papacy. But after the death of John XXII in 1334, the papacy wasn't quite as hostile to the Bavarian emperor, at least not for a bit. The next pope and Ludwig even made peace with each other, but that was not to last, as the pope after that, Clement VI, was just as hostile to Ludwig as John was, and this time he had allies in Germany who could effectively oppose the Wittelsbach emperor. So, in 1346, the Luxembourgs managed to get a majority of the electors of the empire together to elect the young Charles of Luxembourg, King of Germany, as Charles IV. Notably absent from this vote were the two Wittelsbach electors, the Margrave of Brandenburg, Ludwig's son, and the Count Palatine of the Rhine, his nephew. The Luxembourgs had the papacy, the archbishops of the Rhine, the dukes of Saxony, and the French on their side, while the Wittelsbachs could count on the support of the Habsburgs, many of the imperial towns, and most of the imperial lower nobility. Things began to look dire for the Luxembourgs when John of Bohemia, Charles's father, died at the Battle of Crecy. But Ludwig the Bavarian would not have the opportunity to really capitalize on that, as he died of a heart attack about a year later. Ludwig's sons opposed Charles for a few years, but peace between Luxembourg and Wittelsbach was made in 1349. As Ludwig was survived by six sons, Bavaria was split up once again, and as many of these sons had multiple sons, the list of Dukes of Bavaria becomes increasingly hard to track over the next few generations. Several Bavarias were created. Upper and Lower Bavaria reappeared for a bit, before they were further divided into Bavaria Landschut, Bavaria Straubing, Bavaria Munich, and Bavaria Ingolstadt. Bavaria would finally get reunited in 1503, due to all but one of the lines dying out, but throughout our story, there will be many Bavarias. For those curious, John the Fearless's brother-in-law, William of Bavaria, came from the Bavaria Straubing line, while Queen Isabeau came from the Bavaria Ingolstadt line. Ludwig's sons would also remain in control of Tyrol and Brandenburg for a generation or so, but due to a few different reasons, both would leave the House of Wittelsbach during the reign of Charles IV with the emperor seizing Brandenburg for the House of Luxembourg, and Tyrol going to the Habsburgs. The Wittelsbachs would remain in control of Haino, Holland, and Zealand for a while longer, as we've seen. I won't be delving into their time in the Low Countries here, as our next episode will be dedicated to it. 
In general, the Bavarian Wittelsbach didn't cause too much trouble for Charles IV, except for when the Wittelsbach Margrave of Brandenburg joined an anti-Luxembourg coalition in the 1370s. This resulted in the Luxembourg seizure of the Margraviate, but as the wider House of Wittelsbach had remained aloof from the conspiracy, no further retributions were made. I wouldn't call the Wittelsbachs supporters of the House of Luxembourg at this point, but they had largely made their peace with Charles and decided to focus their ambitions on their own territories. As we covered in our first Grand Dukes of the Center episode, Charles IV managed to get his son Wenceslas elected king during his lifetime, so when he died in 1378, the House of Luxembourg remained in possession of the imperial office. But as we've covered in the show, Wenceslas was a terrible king of Germany, and he wasn't a great king of Bohemia either. These issues were interrelated as his capture by a collection of Bohemian nobles prompted the election of Rupert II of the Palatinate to the office of Vicar of the Empire. While this did take some authority away from Wenceslas, this was actually a good thing for the Luxembourg king, as Rupert sent his son, another Rupert, to help secure Wenceslas's freedom. Although the election did demonstrate Wenceslas's glaring weakness in both Bohemia and in the empire. While Wenceslas was ruling the empire, if you could call it that, the several Wittelsbach dukes of Bavaria were in a near-constant state of conflict and shifting alliances with each other. The cousins all wanted more land, money, and power, and for the most part, they decided that their expansionism should be directed at the parts of Bavaria not already under their rule. But towards the end of the 1300s, most of the Wittelsbach clan put aside their differences in order to focus their wrath on the House of Luxembourg. This united front wouldn't last long, and more inter-Bavarian conflicts arose soon after, but it was enough to bring about a change in imperial leadership. Dissatisfaction with Wenceslas only increased in this period, and on multiple occasions he was summoned by an imperial diet, a general assembly of the most important princes, clerics, and cities of the empire, to explain himself. Wenceslas was dealing with other crises in Bohemia, and so did not attend these diets. And in response to this snub by the king of Germany, the four Rhenish electors of the empire, the archbishops of Mainz, Cologne, and Trier, and the Count Palatine, now Rupert III, deposed Wenceslas. The basis for this was the abject failure of Wenceslas to rule as king of Germany, and furthermore, thanks to the Golden Bull of 1356 promulgated by Charles IV, this deposition was legal, as it was done by a majority of the electors. Shortly after the deposition, Rupert was elected king of Germany. Wenceslas refused to accept these acts, and so we once again have two kings of Germany. There's honestly not that much to say about the decade that Rupert and Wenceslas vied for the throne that I haven't already brought up in a past episode. Rupert had a wider base of support than Wenceslas, but that's really not saying much. All in all, both kings were too poor and too weak to drive the other from power. The highlights of Rupert's time as King of Germany include a failed campaign into Italy, an inconsequential campaign against Wenceslas, and his opposition to the Council of Pisa. Rupert died in 1410, and by that time he was in serious debt and had little power over the empire. 
After Rupert's death, the Wittelsbachs made no play to try and secure the imperial office. Rather, it was two members of the House of Luxembourg, Sigismund and Joscht, who made their bid for power. There would be another Wittelsbach king of Germany eventually, but not until the 18th century. This gap shouldn't be seen as a weakening of the House of Wittelsbach. They will remain one of the most important families in the Holy Roman Empire until its dissolution, and in Germany more generally until the end of the First World War. Much like Bavaria after Ludwig's death, after Rupert's death, the Palatinate was split into several counties. However, the electoral title could not be shared, and so Rupert's oldest son was the only Elector Palatine. And speaking of the electoral title not being shared, I want to back up to add an addendum to the Treaty of Pavia. According to the deal between Ludwig and his nephews, the right to vote in imperial elections would alternate between the Bavarian and Palatine branches of the Wittelsbach family with each election. However, the Golden Bull of 1356 firmly established the elector position with the Palatinate branch. This monopolization of the electoral title and vote did cause some resentment amongst the Bavarian Wittelsbachs, and will come up again in a few centuries during the Thirty Years' War. Throughout the period that the rest of our show covers, members of the Wittelsbach family will be embroiled in various conflicts with each other and with other princes of the empire. Let's take Louis of Bavaria, Queen Isabeau's brother, as an example. He spent much of his early career in France, but did return to Bavaria a few times to support his father in wars with the other Dukes of Bavaria. Later, once he became the Duke of Bavaria-Ingolstadt, his reign was dominated by a decades-long conflict with the Duke of Bavaria-Landschut. This conflict occasionally pulled in other Bavarian dukes, and Louis ended his days as a prisoner of his own son. This is not exactly an exception for the Wittelsbachs. Even the Bavaria-Straubing line, whose attentions were always primarily on the Low Countries, will fall victim to infighting in the coming episodes. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we look into the turbulent life of Jacqueline of Bavaria, we need to explore her family's time as rulers in the Low Countries. So next time, we're going to look at what was happening in Haino, Holland, and Zealand under the Wittelsbachs. Thank you so much to my patrons. Christine, Duchesse de Namur, Peter, Duc de Brassion, Elliot, Graf von Kravenstein, Anthony, Comte de Chateauneuf-Nuxois, James, Graf von Temsa, Preston, Comte de Saint-Fargo, Marc, Comte de Mirceau, Diana, Graf von Biersel, Mehmet, Comte Santerre, Chris, Comte de Simour, Rosa, Comte de Germol, Elliot, Comte de Bussy-le-Grand, Quinton, Graf von Blasfeld, Tyler, Comte de Chamaray, Ian, Graf von Arenberg, and to my Knights of the Duchy. If you want to join them, you can at patreon.com slash Burgundy. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can do so by leaving a review on your podcast app of choice and telling your friends about the show. Both really help to grow the show and will earn you my everlasting appreciation. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me at Valois Burgundy on Twitter or Blue Sky, or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest at gmail.com 
and check out the podcast website for maps, images, sources, and more at granddukesofthewest.com. Once again, thank you for listening.